0: Hello again, Ars Technica listeners. This is the second installment of a three-part interview with astroarchaeology pioneer, Sarah Parkak. We'll start with a rerun of the last several seconds of yesterday's installment, just to get you oriented. And here we go. So, yeah, wow. they, they
1: helped they help to fund it.
0: I had not realized that. So the the program is online and I, it's it's very accessible to YouTube. So I would recommend it to anybody because it is a fascinating. It's over an hour long and like it's in, it's pretty in yeah. Depth. It's
1: a ninety minute program.
0: What remind me of the full title so people so can it's, Google it's it. It's
1: Egypt's lost cities.
0: Got it. It's so cool that they actually helped fund it. Now, so the scope of that discovery, how many months did that unfold over? Like how many months were you working on?
1: I can't remember exactly how long, uh, but you know, I had a team of four students and a full-time researcher and myself. So it probably took
0: us six or seven months. Got it. And um, you found literally thousands of sites or candidate sites, right?
1: Over 3,100 potential sites.
0: And these are things that people had simply not been aware of previously. Correct. That is just an astonishing amount of detection. And in doing this broader project with the BBC, you also made what could prove to be a major discovery in the field of Egyptology. Could you tell us a bit about Ijtawi? So
1: I've been fascinated with, um, with ancient Egyptian settlements and settlement archaeology. I mean, that's what Barry did at Cambridge. He's a settlement archaeologist, and that's the training I received. So I'm very interested in ancient human settlements in Egypt and their environmental interactions and how and why certain cities were inhabited and then abandoned over time. So one of the crazy things in in Egyptology, one of the big kind of mystery questions is, where was Egypt's capital in the Middle Kingdom? The Middle Kingdom was their great renaissance, their great period of art and architecture and, uh, and literature. And this city was located about two hours south of Cairo, next to this very large Middle Kingdom cemetery. So these two kings, Amenemhat I and Samosret the I, founded this major dynasty, Dynasty 12, and the thousands and thousands of tombs uh, are in and around their pyramids. And we know, Egyptologists have known for over 100, 150 years, that the capital city was located somewhere in the floodplain to the east of the site of Lisht, which is the main cemetery site Mm -hmm. but where was it um and because it was in the floodplain a lot of egyptologists had written it off and said there's no way anyone could ever potentially find it it just it's too large we don't know it's gone
0: forever and this is some 40 miles south of cairo roughly 40 45 yes yes
1: but like nothing is ever gone forever in archaeology and just because you think it's there and it's gone but you can't find it means that you haven't done enough logic and thought through the tools and technologies you might need to find it. Mm. So that's what I I, I kind of got obsessed with the city as an undergrad, and I thought, well, if it's there and they can't find it, it means it's there to be found. I'd like to find it. Uh-huh. So anyway, initially as part of this BBC program, um, we used radar data to look at subtle topography changes. We were able to map the old, old location of the Nile River, and there were a couple areas that were really? slightly higher. Yes, a couple areas that were slightly higher to the west of the Relic uh, River course, and we did something called coring or augering. Um, so essentially you you, you, you go down uh, in 10-centimeter, use a 10-centimeter wide device where you're popping out bits of um, earth. And we went down and down and down. And about four meters down, we hit a dense layer of elite Middle Kingdom pottery, as well as worked semi-precious stone. We found a
0: suburb of Itchtawe. That is Amazing. So basically, you were able, looking at the satellite imagery, to more or less establish where the Nile had been at the time when Ijtawi would have been the capital city. And it was capital city for about 400 years. Correct. So very, very significant site. I mean, 400 years, even in ancient Egypt, is an awful long time. Yes. And so you were able to establish where the river was, make educated guesses about where the highlands would have been that would have gotten drowned in the annual flood. And based on that satellite imagery, you dug and you found, a, a, like you said, elite pottery, which meant that there were not just anybody, but metropolitan, relatively wealthy people living there.
1: Yes. Yeah. So, so you know, what are the chances of taking this device anywhere in the floodplain and sticking you know, 10 centimeters wide you know, and finding something? It's a million or billion
0: to one. Because of the satellite imagery, you were able to essentially strike pay dirt in an almost literal sense. And you found a piece of precious, you found a precious stone that was pretty indicative, correct? Right. That something big was here.
1: So so typically when you're doing this coring work, um, you know, you're know you looking for old courses of the Nile. Uh, potentially you may find pottery that, because you're working in a settlement that's known already. Um, so in, in archaeology, for the most part, I call pottery the Tupperware of the ancient world just because everyone used it. And based on the form and style and function, even of the the fragments, we're able to figure out uh, the the types of activities that took place on sites or in places. And there's certain types of pottery that you that your your richer individuals would use versus your middle class or lower class individuals. It's like today, um, you know, not everyone drives a Mercedes. So similar thing in antiquity. And in that in that dense um, sort of deposit in which we we cord, we're able to find. Not, not just elite Middle Kingdom pottery, but worked amethyst and carnelian and agate. Mm. Um, and a lot of jewelry in the Middle Kingdom had carnelian and agate. So yeah, I think maybe we were working in a potential um, jewelry workshop. Area. Wow,
0: which is very, very indicative, of course, that this was the capital. Now, there have been a couple other BBC specials that followed that, one in Rome. There was a Viking one as well. Yes. But somewhere in there, you became a TED fellow. So let's talk about that, because that has led to something quite extraordinary.
1: So, yes, it's it's a funny story, and I don't know that I've ever shared it before. So um, this is going to be new. Cool. So yeah, like many professors, I watched TED Talks. I knew what TED was, but I had no idea that they had this fellows program where they picked you know, 20 or so kind of game-changing individuals that kind of begin reaching the uh, apex of the beginnings of their careers. Um, I didn't know this program existed. So I had been doing a bit of filming um, in New York with Brendan Fraser, as you do. Yeah. Um, and So this was during the summer. You know, I, I most professors at um, state universities. You know, we don't tend to get summer paychecks. We use that time to do research and do writing. So I hadn't gone into my university office in months, and in New York, my uncle randomly happened to be there at the same time, uh, and he was coming to Birmingham to uh participate in a in in a conference so we're on the same flight and we come comes in we have a nice weekend together and so as he's leaving on the sunday he goes oh show me your lab show me your office before i go to the airport i'm like phil i just no come on it's like an office it's got computers it's not that exciting and he bugs me and bugs me so i take him to the lab and i show him the lab He's like show me your office show me your office i'm like phil it's an office It has a computer and books. So he pokes me enough to where I go in my office and I see that I have a message, like a message. I haven't been in here in months. I pick up the phone and listen to my messages. It was the TED Fellows team reaching out to me to apply to be a TED Fellow. The deadline was the next day. Oh, good. So It's good timing. Yeah, it was crazy. And yep. so I, I applied, I'm going to wing it a prayer, you know, had an interview and then got named a TED Fellow.
0: And the TED Fellows program, for those who don't know, is as you described it, it's 20-ish people a year, right? Yes. Uh, who are who come to TED free of charge, which is no small thing because TED tickets are really expensive. And um, then you basically become something like a class or a cohort, and it's an extraordinary diversity of people, people in the arts, people in the sciences, people who are doing things in politics, not-for-profit, etc. And it is really, to me, as somebody who goes to the conference as sort of like a, a, a normal attendee, the bar to become a ted fellow is incredibly high i don't even i don't even want to think how many people apply for each slot but it is a very incredible group of people who end up getting curated as a result of that and so That's when you and I met, actually. And I'll I'll tell the story because this was 2012, right? That's right. So we both ended up speaking on the main stage that year. I had been an attendee for a number of years, but I gave a a talk that year. And you were brought up on the main stage that year as well, weren't you? Yes, to give a very short talk. To give a short talk. Well, mine was short as well. So we both gave short talks, but oh my God, talk about terrifying. I don't know. I don't care how many minutes you're on that stage. But what's unusual is the TED fellows have their own sessions and they give their talks. And, um you know, it's early in the, it's before the formal official beginning of the conference. So they're a little bit more lightly attended because people are still coming in. Everybody who's in tries to attend, but there's something that's a little magical about the main stage. So you got, you got pl- plucked from your group to talk to the whole of Ted. Well, remind me what you spoke of. Cause that was about a four or five minute talk. Well, you talked about the field of space archeology span basically, right? So, yes,
1: yeah, So for my, um, for my fellows talk, I, I talked about space archeology span and, and actually, 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 the discovery of what might potentially be a suburb of Itchitawi. Um, So I I knew that was going to be my, my talk subject, and I had no idea. That I was going to be asked to speak on the main stage, so I get this email out of the blue. And you um, didn't
0: because we ended up having lunch together. Yes, and uh, you didn't know it then either. I don't think. Well,
1: I I, I did know. You I was did. At, you I was, did. Okay. You're already freaking out. Okay, I definitely had nightmares. I call them TEDmares by the way, which is trademarked <laughs> to me. Just awful. Um. So, so yes. Yeah, so I I knew it was a super short talk. So they encouraged me to think about how to present differently. And so I took the challenge to heart. So instead of just showing slides, I used Google Earth and combined that with video. And as I was speaking, I had video animation of zooming in from the TED uh, Theater at Long Beach over to Egypt. Or we'd zoom in, and it was the um, the discovery that I'd made of, of Tanis.
0: And you and, did not charter a space shuttle for that video footage, and I thought you had. I, I'm I'm disappointed to hear that I'm that I'm was merely yeah. animation.
1: I was riding on a satellite. That's <laughs> <guess.
0: laughs> so the actual sat- no, satellite the, archaeology. It's
1: like that. That was one of the most terrifying moments of my life. Yeah. Um. And I was warned beforehand by um, the the Ted Fellows director Tom Riley. He said muscle memory. Practice it over a hundred times. When you go up on that stage, you will completely freak out. If it's not muscle memory, you're in trouble. And it was right. Like I get up, I got up on that stage and I just remembered like hundreds of hands coming towards me and they pulled me out of myself
0: and then I walked off stage. Good. That went very well. And then was it about this time that you also got involved with National Geographic?
1: Yes. So so 2012 was was a seminal year. So um, I wasn't just named a TED fellow in that year, but I was selected to be an emerging explorer at the National Geographic Society. So that program is a little bit different than that TED Fellows program, although there's some crossover. So they pick between 10 and 15 uh, explorers from across the world, people doing work in conservation, in um, science outreach and communication, archaeology, anthropology, videography, photography. um, And and it really is a globally diverse class. And you get invited to National Geographic um, for a week. It's called the Explorers Week. It's an extraordinary week in June, where explorers come from all over the world. We're part of the National Geographic family. And again, similar to TED, you give a short talk, but you get very intensive mentoring Mm. uh, in public speaking, in science communication, and again, you're part of this cohort. They provide some funding for your research. So yeah, that was a, a crazy year in my life. It was also the same year my son was born. Oh,
0: that's cool. That is a very big year. And it, you've, in a sense, gone up a level in the explorer ranks since right. then, correct?
1: Right. So so now I'm an archaeology fellow. So there are three levels of explorers at National Geographic. So at the top, you have people like, you know, Jane Goodall, um, or, you know, members of the Leakey family, you know, these eminent uh, individual explorers, you know them by name of uh, the great oceanographer Sylvia Earle as well, so they're called explorers and residents. Kind of the mid-level is, um, is called a fellow, and you work with National Geographic on set projects, so I am an archaeology fellow right
0: now. So 2012, very, very big year. Also, the year after the Arab Spring, and the beginning of a, kind of an industrial scale of looting uh, in, in Egypt and other places, and that really, in many ways, uh, change the trajectory of at least part of your career. Yes. Uh, l- let's talk about that a little bit.
1: So prior to the Arab Spring, um, I'd done a little bit of cultural heritage work. Anytime you work in archaeology, of course, you end up doing cultural heritage work. And I had um, worked with assorted partners and colleagues on you know, strategies and thinking through how do you, how do you protect archaeological sites in times of conflict. But it really wasn't what I did. Mainly, but you know, January twenty fifth, two thousand eleven, um, I like everyone in my field was just glued to my screen because Tahrir Square is really the, kind of our our own shared backyard. You have the Cairo Museum, you have. The time, uh, uh, the Hilton Hotel, where a lot of us would meet for lunch. You have um, uh, the American and other embassies in Garden City. A little bit uh, AUC, yeah, AUC, AUC, right? American University in Cairo. So, so so it's an area where we typically stay. So it felt like there was a revolution in our backyard, and we didn't really think anything of it until a couple days later when we woke up and we heard that the Cairo Museum had been looted. And my first thought was, oh my God, this is like the museum in Baghdad, and I had visions of. You know, King Tut's head being carried through Tahrir and, you know, tens of thousands of objects gone. And my heart just broke. Now, Ultimately, it turned out that just a few dozen objects were stolen. Still terrible, but not as bad as it could have been. And then we started getting reports that sites were being looted. Sites, art
0: digs were being looted.
1: Ancient, so major sites like Saqqara, like Dashur. But we absolutely didn't know um, sort of the veracity of those claims. You know, all these rumors are going on, pro-Mubarak, anti-Mubarak, who's telling the truth, who's not. So uh, I... there's a group of us, sort of about 100, 150 of us, and we all got on this email list server. I have no idea who created it. I was the only Egyptologist. Mm. And a lot of the archaeologists were getting kind of worked up, and they started sharing rumors, and everyone was was getting worked up and worked up. And I stepped in as the Egyptologist and said, hold on, everyone, there's no way that we're going to know one way or the other um, whether or not there's looting until we get people there on the ground. So until then, calm down. We don't know. At that point, Chris Johns, the then CEO of National Geographic, reached out and said, oh, well, you know, you do work with satellites. Can you tell whether or not there's looting? And I go, be careful what you ask for. So they very kindly provided some funding working with working with Digital Globe and at the time this foundation called GOI. And they provided very high-resolution satellite imagery to me that was just taken. And I had just finished up the BBC program. A few months earlier. So I had tons and tons of data through two thousand ten and I was able to compare So you
0: had pre-looting imagery by sheer happenstance from yes. the year before the Arab Spring started. Yes. So you had before and you had the before pictures and now National Geographic funded the after pictures. Yes. So
1: so I was able to compare images within a few months of each other. And there was clear looting that had happened at multiple sites south of Cairo.
0: Wow. And, and you you basically, it's looting pits that you're able to die. Describe what you see that is, that is evidence of looting.
1: So typically on sites, I mean, it's kind of bumpy. You know, there are tombs or other structures below the ground, more or less flat-ish. But from space, when you look down, you before image and it's flat or sandy, maybe you see dense concentrations of sherds, so the, the ground is stained slightly red because of the pottery. And then the after image, you see dark holes or squares. Surrounded by a circle of earth, so it's where the, the tomb shaft is that the looters have gone down into, and the circle of earth around it is the debris from the tomb that they've just looted.
0: Just as we imagine, like a a, a grave digger in a horror movie, they're digging and digging, and then a circle of dirt yes. emerges around it. That's what a yeah. looting pit looks like. Yes, and I've seen satellite images. They're they're basically these tiny black specks. So they look like donuts, really. They are.
1: They yeah, are. and and they're not they're not difficult to map. You know, and anyone could pick them out. It's not like I provide you know did some satellite imagery mumbo jumbo and applied algorithms in your honor, I swear it's a looting pit. These are very,
0: very clear. There's no question that this is, and and characterize, you know, a before, a, a typical, or if there's one very specific one that's burnt into your mind, a before and after image that will sort of exemplify the degree of looting that happened post Arab Spring.
1: You know, in some places in Egypt, there are open tomb shafts, right? These are things that have been excavated, and there typically may be um, some kind of walling system around them. In other words, those are protected by Egypt's Ministry of Antiquities. Well, then you've got this vast expanse of of earth or sand around it. Well, one side I'm thinking of just south of, of Dashur. So this is about an hour and a half south of Cairo, a massive you know, rich pyramid fields area. And imagine a a landscape that's mostly kind of creamy yellow to brown sands. Um, You see undulations in the before imagery, but it's clear that it hasn't been touched in thousands of years. And then imagine the whole landscape turning into Swiss cheese with hundreds and
0: hundreds of these pits. Hundreds of looting pits. Uh,
1: 800, 1,000, 2,000.
0: Describe the amount of work that would go into, let's say I'm a looter, how many person hours of digging would you imagine it takes to create one of these pits, to, so, to, yeah. So, so as an example- This is a lot of work that's been Massive done. work.
1: So so imagine this, so a typical modern excavation, let's just say you were working in a tomb shaft, right? You, you were professionally excavating one of these tombs with full permission of the Ministry of Antiquities. So you're yeah. working with a team, you're very carefully going down, going down, going down. You're recording everything, maybe you get down to the tomb And, you know, maybe you'd start to record it and that would take you two or three seasons and then you would conserve it. So typically a single tomb shaft, a single tomb may take you a couple seasons of work with a crew of 40 to 60 to 80 people. These guys would come in and in a single night would loot two to three of these tombs.
0: So they would dig as deep as that?
1: They would just go 100 miles an hour. Yep. You know, sometimes they'd have mechanized equipment, sometimes they wouldn't, but they just you know, were hell-bent on getting to that tomb Layer. and l- yanking out ca- sarcophagi, statues, uh, inscribed fragments, anything that they could sell.
0: Now, if we're looking at a site that has 1,000 pits... That's not cuz there's a thousand tombs. That's like exploratory surgery. Like in that case they're digging hoping to hit something, I assume?
1: No, they know exactly where to go.
0: Really? So when there's a thousand looting sites or hundreds of looting pits, each one of those was carefully chosen.
1: More or less. Yeah. I mean that's that's what I've found working in the pyramid fields and working at Lish. There's surgical precision
0: wow. with with
1: what they're doing. So each looting pit, I mean not 100%, but like 95 yeah. to 98% of the looting pits at Lish are, are, are can be can be connected to a specific tomb or series of tombs. And
0: Lisht is the the modern city that is in the area where, where you've been doing a lot of your work, yes, you know, yeah. just south of Cairo. So there is extraordinary surgical precision. These are not randomly dug holes then? No, no, not at all. And also, uh, I, I know on some of the satellite images, there's Bulldozers, like there's traces of actual bulldozers and heavy moving earth equipment that has gone through there.
1: Correct. So, so typically in in um, the ancient Egyptians on these sites, so you either have these shaft tombs that are cut into the bedrock, yeah. or they'll, um, you know, if you're more elite, if you have you know sway with the king's court, instead of having a shaft tomb somewhere in the bedrock, you know, within the striking distance of the pyramid, the king would give you um, another rock cut tomb, except it would be along the edge of the landscape where the rock would be a bit better. So you could dig into rather than just down. Yep. And those tombs tended to be a bit richer. Well, they're covered over with sand. It's easy for a bulldozer to come in and expose five or six of them at a time. And
0: that's wow. what would happen. So we've got surgically chosen sites. We have bulldozer work. These are clearly inside jobs.
1: Well, so looting is complicated. Um, we, we have to be careful how we categorize looting. So there are different kinds of looters in different parts of the world. And people loot for different reasons. Um, You know, some people treat the sites a bit like piggy banks. You can kind of dip in and take a few things and and go with it. So at Lysht, we had a couple different kinds of of looting. You know, you have locals that organize. uh, They'll split the proceeds. These are not bad people. Uh, And by the way, don't think of these individuals as kind of desperate for money. Think of it as a side job. Hmm. So, you know, local collectives will go in and they'll loot. Well, then you've got more organized looting done by mafioso elements. And- so, so
0: that first person you said, don't think of them as, so these are folks who are not necessarily starving, but they're folks who are local, who are augmenting their income, but, they're, but they are quite poor by Western standards. They're
1: they're definitely poor. And they, you know, because, um, because the currency has been devalued, there's been so much inflation in Egypt. There's, you know, they may say, well, you know, we're going to run short on funds to send our kids to school this month. Yeah. So it's not like these, these people are not buying, you know, TVs and expensive cars with this money. They're going to,
0: they're covering necessities, right?
1: right, That you my uncle needs a surgery. My kid needs to go to school. Maybe this month we can afford to buy meat. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I just, discourage any kind of black or white yep. painting. It's very gray. Well, the mafia people are a little different. Mm. Um, they're organized groups, they come in. So the collectives, will they'll get what they get when they sell them to middlemen, and they'll split the proceeds.
0: Collectives, is that the term of, that you've used? I, I, I just
1: use you know, people who are cooperating to, to split the proceeds versus the, the mafia-type folks. And these men will be paid a set amount per night with bonuses Depending on the things that they find, so they have incentive to get down to that bottom of the tomb shaft.
0: So this is a totally different group of diggers, better organized, better funded. That yes. we're talking about, yeah. And now.
1: I think they're the ones that have the mechanized equipment, just from what I've heard. Got it. And they'll go in and they'll dig faster. They have larger groups. They'll often be armed with machine guns. Really. So um, there, there have been a lot of deaths all over Egypt really? from fights between looters and people protecting
0: the sites. Wow, between people protect and between rival gangs of looters as well. Or I haven't so heard so of that, yet. but
1: but a lot of the a lot of the guards on sites will, you know, they've risked their lives trying to prevent these looters from from taking over.
0: Now, one of the points that you've made in uh, some of your talks is not so much the stuff that's coming out of Egypt, but a lot of the stuff that's coming out of Mesopotamia uh, is quite literally funding ISIS, correct?
1: So this is a big debate in my field. So we know there's, you know, there's been wide scale looting across sites in Syria and Iraq and even in Afghanistan. Um, so there's a question of the extent to which the that looting is helping to fund ISIL, and what they'll do, and what we know, is um, you know, ISIS themselves—they they don't know anything about digging, so they'll hire professional looters from Iraq, and they'll rent out archaeological sites and essentially charge overhead on whatever they find, so they get a cut. Um, but yeah, there's been massive smuggling, you know, over the Turkish border. Uh, You know, a lot of stuff is sitting in auction houses, but a lot of stuff on the market now is hot. You know, if you see an object, Christie's or Sotheby's or elsewhere, and it's from somewhere in the Middle East, um, I I would say there's a pretty good chance it's hot. It's come from that illegal digging.
0: And I was going to ask, who in the world is making a market in this stuff? Because obviously this stuff has to connect with moneyed people who are saying, boy, I want that relic. I'm going to pay a lot of money. So it is ultimately being channeled through traditional auction houses and other other modern markets
1: yes so so you know whether it's big auction houses like christie's or sotheby's or smaller private houses you know i've learned for example that a lot of uh, antiquities from the middle east go through thailand when i first heard that i was like "Er, like what that makes no sense except Thailand has no rules or regulations over antiquity's import and export. So it's a great place to ship objects because there are no rules.
0: Antiquity laundering, yes. as it were. Yes, Interesting. And it was really, I'm just going to assume, the, the general lawlessness and chaos that ensued in 2011 that led the, the looting to explode in the immediate wake of the fall of the Mubarak government. Is that really the trigger?
1: You'd think that would be the story, but it's actually much more interesting. Oh, really? I think that the story is much more related across the Middle East to climate change and economic instability. Okay. So in Egypt, you know, we have 12 years of satellite data that yes. we looked at from 2002 to 2013, 2014. Yep. And you'd think that in 2011, you know, the looting would be pretty stable. You know, a little bit of looting has gone on since antiquity. Yes. And then it would explode. Yep. That's not the case. It started picking up in 2007, 2008, and then 2009, 2010, that that S-shaped curve starts taking off.
0: So it was a process that was well underway when the Arab Spring happened. Yes. Interesting.
1: And and I wouldn't know this because I, I don't map looting in Syria and Iraq, but... You know the 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 whole Arab Spring happened as a result of climate change post 2006. You know people are losing access to water. Um, they um, massive uh, political instability. Uh, the government's not allowing certain farmers to have access to wells and water because they hold diverse political views. So people start leaving their traditional olive groves. They're moving to cities. There's tension building up, and then one day a, a gang of young men because they were angry and they didn't you know they they saw no future, they wrote graffiti on walls, they were disappeared by the government yeah. by Assad, and that's what came Dara- to, I'm totally uh, over up yeah. totally oversimplifying yeah, it. Yeah. But, but but I think there was a lot of looting already going on in Syria as a result of economic instability and climate change in two thousand eight, nine and ten.
0: But you do know factually that that was the pattern in Egypt because, because you had this huge database from the BBC work that you did and then you augmented it with the post Arab Spring data.
1: Yeah. So so so, in that case, we used um, open access satellite imagery from Google Earth just because, you know, we had tens of millions of dollars. Oh, so uh, this is
0: yet another project. Totally different, totally different okay. project. Okay, you started this actually. Now, this is coming back to me. You started this in 2014, right? The uh, looting survey or a yeah, little started earlier?
1: 2013 to 2014, Yeah. So, this was funded by National Geographic.
0: Got it. Okay. And this was a specific, this was kind of a follow on to that semi spontaneous work that you did shortly after the Arab Spring. And you got it's 12 years of satellite data for each for each of the sites that you were looking at
1: right so yeah so we looked at not only the 3100 sites that we had in our database but the thousands and thousands of other sites that we knew about that we we had so we just looked at every site carefully and systematically uh, and and mapped out looting pits and size of looting pits and also damage to sites and then once we had all the numbers we crunched it and looked at changes over time
0: and that was, that led directly into your TED Prize, if I'm not mistaken, right?
1: Yeah, I think it was a, a contributing factor. Yes. So
0: so there were just, it, it, this 12 years a day, there were just two of you looking at all these satellite images and counting the looting pits. Three of us. There were three of you. So that, that, that your eyes, you probably closed your eyes at night and saw little looting pits, right? I, I
1: yeah, I, I like. Rocking the a ball. It's PTSD (laughs) from looting mapping.
0: So let's talk about the TED Prize because that was something that fed right into this. I mean, that was the last major project you did before you were awarded it, correct? Correct. So now just to be clear to, to listeners, this is distinct from the TED Fellow program. So you'd become a TED Fellow in 2012. You were a TED Fellow for two or three years. And now we're toward the end of that period. And then the TED Prize comes along.
1: See, so, yeah, I was kind of wrapping up my uh, my my TED fellowship, my TED senior fellowship, when I found out. Well, first I, I found out I was nominated for the TED Prize, and frankly, that that was enough, right, to even get a nomination.
0: And describe what the TED Prize is for those sure. who don't know.
1: So it's a million dollar prize that's given to one person every year, and there that person is invited to make a bold wish to change the world.
0: Mm-hmm. And the, and then Ted enables that that wish to come true with a million dollars of funding and then also perhaps at least as significantly if not more, access to the vast TED Rolodex, which is significant because there are almost 2,000 attendees of the conference and all kinds of people who are friends of TED and so forth.
1: That's right. So so you work um, not just with the TED team, but specifically at TED, there's a whole TED Prize team. Um, so I, I got to work very closely with Anna Burgays, who's the TED Prize director and her extraordinary team. I love them all. Um, they become like, like another family. And so they mentor you, they work with you, they help you develop your wish. Um, so you get to present your wish at... At TED. So this would have been TED 2016.
0: February 2016. Uh, oh, February
1: 2016. Yes.
0: And you had known about, you had known that you had wanted for a few months prior to that, yes, correct? Correct. Yeah.
1: So I, you know, I was working on my talk because this was an actual proper 18 minute full on TED talk.
0: Yes. And also you were presenting your wish to the world in yes. hopes that it will rally not just the TED community, but millions of people are going to see your TED talk and might come forward with resources and so forth to be able to help you. Correct. How long is the application process?
1: So um, or the nomination probably right. you're so, nominated you don't so apply. So I think I found out I was nominated um, in July of that summer, and I I remember I was sitting on a, a bench uh, in, on an island in Western Scotland, um, in the one place on the island where I actually got internet access. And I saw this email, congratulations, Ted Prize. I said, what,
0: what's this? Were you in the Hebrides? Which island were you on?
1: I was on an island called Papa Store. So it's the westernmost island of the Shetland Islands. Oh,
0: okay. The Shetlands. Papa yeah. Store Great name, just yes, got to throw that out. Yeah, it is a
1: great name. Great name. I, I couldn't. Mama store waiting to be found. Waiting but to be found. Yes. yes. Um. So so I get this email. Oh my god, what? And I sort of sat there in shock, for about five or 10 minutes thinking, oh my, to even be nominated. This is yeah. amazing. So there's a a short, I don't even want to call it an application. It's, you know, what's your wish? What's your dream? How will we work with the TED community? Yeah. You know, a couple pages long. Um and then you um and, and I should note, even as a TED Prize winner, like the whole process, they're very, they're very careful about keeping it confidential. Uh, so but I, I'm able to share this with you. So you, yes. you sort of you you start working with the uh, TED Prize Uh, team or committee, and they work with all the nominees to help you to refine your wish. Yes. You sort of put it in. And then at some point, it sort of feels like you're kind of going down a chute. um, And then there's a final interview with the jury um, a month or two later. And then I got a phone call um, the middle of that September that totally changed my life.
0: And you then had a few months to get ready for the talk in which you presented your wish. So let's fast forward to that. Now it is the big day. You are at TED. You, it is time for you to give this major talk. Um, I would imagine the biggest talk of your life. It, By a long shot, it was the biggest talk of my life. Hey, ours technical listeners, that was at least a minor cliffhanger, right? Tomorrow, we'll talk about Sarah's TED Talk and also conclude this conversation. And if you can't wait to hear the rest of it, or if you'd just like to browse my other three dozen-ish episodes, head on over to my site at after-on.com or simply type the words after on into your favorite podcast app. And finally, before we wrap up, I'd like to note that throughout October, Medium.com is running a series of essays that I've written on the subject of existential risk, which is to say the grim yet perversely fascinating possibility that our technological creations might just annihilate us. Although I'm, of course, biased, I do think I have a novel take on all this and present some arguments and analytical lenses that are new to the discussion about existential risk. If this interests you, please go to medium.com at symbol, That's medium.com, then a slash, followed by the at symbol, followed by Rob Reed, and Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. There's also a link on the webpage that's hosting this audio player. The first article in the series went up a couple weeks ago. By the time you're hearing this, there should be at least three, maybe four, but probably three, articles from the four-article series. I should note that Medium is running this on their editorially curated paid members-only section. The good news is they give everyone access to a few free articles per month with essentially zero friction. That's it for now. I hope you'll join me tomorrow for the conclusion of this conversation with Sarah Parkak.